Hi everyone, welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. Hi friends, this is a special episode, a love letter to David Graeber. For those of you that do not know David, he was an anthropologist that passed away in 2020. Um, David was also one of the influential figures of anthropology for me. Um, as I was struggling several years back to, to figure out my positionality and my intention within the space of anthropology, David's work has been incredibly helpful. And when I found out of his passing, um, I really wanted to honor his memory here on the podcast and share David uh, with you and with the speakers that um, I entered the space of conversation. Gabriela was taught a course by David at LSE, while Amina got to know him as a thesis supervisor there. Through the lived experiences of Amina and Gabriela, we are exploring David's contribution and legacy in action. What has stuck with them from the conversations they had with David and the academic interactions he created? Gabriela and Amina share beautiful examples from their individual encounters with David as an academic lead and a fellow human. We finally ask how to make someone like David possible in academia again and more. At the end, they share their favorite readings. Listen to this conversation about a personal anthropological touch and the inheritance of David Graeber. We hope you enjoy it. Hi, friends. We are here today with Amina and Gabriela um, on the podcast. Hi, Amina. Hi, Gabriela. Hey, hi, Corina. Hi, Amina. Hello, Gabriela. Hi, Corina. So nice to be here. Yeah, it's so nice to be here too, and 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 great to have your second time on the podcast, Amina. For those of us listening, I'll I'll I'll, I'll link down the other uh, episode that Amina was part of. This episode is a long time in the making. I think it's somewhere between half a year and a year, <laughs> and um, it it was it was started by um, actually quite a sad news, which is the passing of David Graeber. For uh, those of our listeners that have been with us for for long time for three years I they probably it's not a surprise that I uh, am saddened and I'm also very much connected to David through his work I've unfortunately never met him but in my uh, start in academia um, his his books and his voice were what made me feel less alone as a kind of this ugly different duckling into the space so um, I wanted to invite people that were equally touched by him, maybe in different ways than I was, to to explore a bit um, that topic, to to explore what he did, what he meant for us, and uh, hopefully contribute. So um, both Gabriela and Amina, maybe we can start by just sharing a bit with our listeners uh, who you are, what do you do, maybe just to kind of anchor anchor us in a in in something a bit more tangible. Thanks. Um, well, um, as, as Corina said, my name is Gabriela Cabaña. Uh, I'm a Chilean uh, anthropologist. I'm currently based in London. Um, I'm in the fourth year of my PhD in anthropology at the London School of Economics and Political Science, which is where I met David uh, in 2017. Um, and I'm currently working on, it's a bit <laughs> difficult to summarize, but uh, I think currently the key words would be something like 
energy transitions, uh, planning and conflicts of um, inside the state regarding the coloniality of power that is mm -hmm. going into renewable energy transitions. And yeah, so that's basically uh, what I'm doing now, like academically speaking. Now, great to, great to hear, uh, Gabriela. What about you, Amina? Um, on my end, I am on, in the other side of the world. Uh, <laughs> I am in South Africa. I, I'm also doing anthropology. I'm in my second year of the PhD and I'm researching um, AI hospitals and the ethics of care, um, particularly focusing on Morocco, which is where I'm from. And I also happened to, to meet David at LSE back in 2019, where I went to do my master's for one year. Um, and I'm keen on telling about that, that human relationship that grew uh, as a result of that. Yeah, great to have you here. Yeah, I'm so curious because I've, I could only um, I, I could only experience him through his books, and um, I can still remember, you know, the first time I I started reading his voice, I started reading Death, um, and I was in a moment that was kind of almost despair in in my academic path because I did not feel like I belonged in the in in the Dutch institution I was in at the time. It and I was wondering, hey. Um, is this, you know, is this, is this what anthropology is? You know, this feeling of of, of uh, alienation, superiority. This is how I kind of engaged with the academic voices that I had around me. And then I started reading that, and and it just gave me such a sense of peace and coming home to the type of anthropology that I wanted to be a part of. So maybe just that, just my little story of, of connection from via from the pages of his book and his thoughts. And I wanted to kind of get us started with, with my first question, which is when, when, when did you feel that, that, that he left a mark for you? Um, what was that moment that you, that you can remember and, and kind of tell us a bit more? Yeah, this is just kind of a funny story that, that I have told a few times before. Um, even though I, I, by the time I got to London, he was uh, like world famous, uh, I didn't really know him. I have rarely heard of him. I, I did my undergrad in Chile, where uh, he hasn't really been taught. Uh, he hadn't, he hasn't really been that translated into Spanish. So I remember like taking the the course on value um, without having any, you know, background on his work, and like slowly through uh, his teaching, like in the classroom, that was how I got to to know him and. And not just him, it was like, like a nice creation of a whole community with also my classmates um, in which we developed this sense of exactly what you were saying, Corina, of like what anthropology can actually do for the struggles for uh, liberation and for human emancipation. And and it was like um, a process of discovering that altogether that was really, um, it was probably the most challenging class I took that year and by the end of that that term it was clear to me that I had found exactly what you said uh, Corina like a very useful way like a very provoking uh, way of understanding anthropology and and I think for my whole uh, cohort like we developed that sense of of excitement you know like we we now like have all these um these approaches and like this this critical perspective that this going to help us in you know a variety of things we're looking into like very different interests but we all we all gathered around this this sense of possibility and like um yeah like recovering this sense of, of wonder that that might be absent um in more mainstream accounts of, of anthropology it was like a very playful space mm -hmm. uh, for us 
So yeah, that's that was like my first impression uh, of him. I love that you say that the the playfulness and the wonder and the possibility because that's exactly what also struck me more more than just of course the intellectual depth and 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 the way he kind of weaved so poetically and so beautifully you know his thoughts but this sense of playfulness with the human spirit and this sense of wonder into what can be possibilities of understanding of the other and each other i have the same with ursula leguin you know when i read when i read her books and and i it, it gives me just the same kind of the same kind of spark the same kind of start but um yeah thank you for this wonderful reflection what about you amina um it it was so great listening to to gabriela because i so i never took any of david's classes um it's it's funny because when i was trying to apply for my masters i really didn't know what LSE was like I didn't know it was a big deal and then I was like I don't know who's teaching there and um that's we I remember in undergrad we read the fifth chapter on on that um the first five thousand years so I actually got to realize that he was the only anthropologist that I knew in the department but then I coincidentally realized that he was appointed to me as a supervisor And I remember that when I had gotten acceptance to LSE, like I really didn't know where I was going to get the funds to actually support myself financially to attend. And I had gotten a full scholarship to, to go there. And on our first meetings, I had told him that. And then he had asked me, uh, what did I write my um, motivation letter on and I said oh you know I was writing about like habitus and Bourdieu and like traveling all these places and trying to look for meaning and construct identity blah 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 and he's like oh yeah I remember that um I, I might have ticked like somewhere a little box that said you should get funding and it's funny how this little box like changed everything right and it was so funny because when I just you know sat and reflected about it Um, I just thought about temporality and had we not like crossed paths at the same time, had he not been the person reading um, the applications, maybe no one would have had the same affinity or the same sort of seeing that he had that I deserved financial aid to get a space in a space that is exclusive by virtue of not being opened to other people Um And so I think that was one of the first encounters. And our, I remember our first meeting lasted for an hour, but it was it was very engaging uh, because I didn't necessarily know much about his scholarship. But there was still like a lot of grounds to to discuss and a lot of um, things to do. So, yeah, I guess I go back to to that notion of possibility of how one person can open up so many possibilities for you to um, to explore and to learn and to unlearn uh, so much in the process and to not romanticize the place where you're in. I think that's also quite uh, something I've uh, sort of inscribed from the journey itself. Yeah, thank you. And it, it, it really struck me also this this kind of ability of, 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 of seeing, right? Like of seeing not just the possibility but also the person and um connecting in that way maybe i don't um that's what i struck me from your story i i always wondered you know um what makes somebody like david possible 
in academia and and particularly in British academia? Like what 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 makes them possible to come into being and and what makes them possible to to stay there? Um, and how can we make more of that happen? I just like uh, this, this kind of question. You know, I remember halfway through the value course, I was getting really frustrated because I. I still didn't have like a definition of like, okay, what, what is value? And I really wanted um, him to give me that, you know, like very easy. And like, he, he would, he wouldn't do it. You know, he would like, oh, one way and, and the other. And and whenever someone asked a direct question, he would say, mm, I don't know, what do you think? And would force to you to do all the work and eventually you would answer your own questions. And I, it, it frustrated me for, for a while until I understood it was like his, his style of teaching. And this is a, a kind of, of, of the same question. I mean, I, I would say, Corinna, what do you think? I mean, <laughs> this is like um, creating space for, for um, you know, like prefigurative uh, ways of being with each other. I think like he just took whatever space he could and, and not just him. I think like, like it, it was a, like a gravity center in which like different people uh, would find, you know, a clique in which they could like, aha, uh-huh, like, um, use a different language and maybe engage beyond what, does, what are like t- the typical boundaries of like what is expected to be learned in a, in a curriculum. Um, you know, like always crossing into conversations about political actions, about what was going on with different struggles in London and elsewhere. And, and yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's clearly a rarity and I don't know, I don't know how we can make those, those spaces more permanent. I think that's a, that's a very practical question. I wouldn't know exactly how to answer it but like it's just doing it you know like we just have mm-hmm. to be like that every day in every every yeah. action we have we have to be like that like it, it act as is as if that was the universe yeah. we are inhabiting you know like i think that's yeah I'm, I'm i'm feeling shy to answer you because i i don't know how much i romanticize him through the books you know so how much because i've never met him but what what struck me in his books that that i think everybody has but i think he particularly displayed it so so clearly was the sense of irreverence you know this sense of not holding yourself back when you are trying to explore associations when you are trying to craft um a thought you know, and this irreverence of saying, hey, I'm going to take this piece from here and I'm going to take this piece from here. And somehow maybe it doesn't make sense, but you will see that at, at some point it will make sense. So so, and, so the irreverence that is also coupled with this reckless exploration of thought. I, I always thought, um, and, and one, one reason why I started the podcast was, was to also provoke more, more academics to kind of enter a space of playfulness and irreverence in, uh, in conversation. Because it, it feels every conference that I go to or articles that I read that it's almost I can see the person, but they are shackled. You know, their their argumentation is shackled in this kind of rigid constructs of I have to reference this and I have to hook this. And it feels like, hey, isn't the toolbox bigger than just the one that you are using? Like, shouldn't you just kind of like break the box and try to make other forms of um, associations, maybe even with other disciplines, maybe even with whatever? So it really struck me in the way he constructed um, arguments, this kind of combination of irreverence and just just daring to make things connect and work. And I think that every academic has the ability to do that somewhere deep inside them. It's just getting it's just getting covered by the institution, you know, and I think that maybe some people like David, they act as a gravity to take what you already have inside of you and maybe just 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 
put that out there a little bit, you know? So in his kind of shadow, in his kind of umbrella, you, you dare to be a little bit more of what you could be, you know? I I actually, it actually resonates uh, with what I was thinking and with what I experienced and, and felt and understood. I don't think David, at the time I met him, was looking for affirmation. Uh, he wasn't caging himself. And I think the way he would introduce himself, he would say, oh, you know, I come from a lower class background. Uh Perhaps that was 40 years ago, uh, because by virtue of becoming intellectual, you know, you're you're immediately privileged by by so many things. You know, being mm-hmm. a bestseller, uh, author, um, teacher, teaching at a very prestigious university, um, and so on and so forth. But I think it's that remembering of where do I come from and who struggles do I connect with, mm-hmm. and am I allowing myself to. Uh, only speak to um, to be in to be in an echo chamber with people who are refusing to see reality for what it is, or who are romanticizing poverty, or who are very distant from uh, the spaces they research. Um, and I think uh, you, you feel that that uncaging or that refusal to fit within a particular structure also reflected in the way like. A conversation with him go so the conversation with David wouldn't necessarily follow like the conventional normative <laughs> structure he would talk to himself he would laugh at his own jokes because I think perhaps he'd come to a point where you know he's just become confident in in the ideas that he has and that he didn't necessarily um need you know people's confirmation or affirmation of um, validity. Yeah, I guess those are some of the thoughts because I think that once you're grounded in specific mm-hmm. values that make you feel at ease in the way you research, in the way you think, in the way you treat others, and in your generosity, you're really able to um, to pursue a life in research that doesn't necessarily um, makes you feel that you're superior to others. And I think it's perhaps that humility that really allows him to speak to everyone and not necessarily refuse engagement. Um, yeah, I guess that's... <laughs> that's great. That's really nicely hooking into the next question that I had. I, um, one, of, one of the things that was also sitting on my mind was was the way he did impact, like the way he used anthropology to affect the world. Um, you know, from his work with activist groups, um, his engagement with anarchist movements, the actual way in which he engaged with media and and the stories. So, um, I'm 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 interested if you can speak more to that too, because a lot of the um, academic spaces that I am part of are most of the academics that are at his caliber of thoughts. They 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 do not seem to be as engaged with the public space and especially with impacting the public space in the way that he seemed to have been. So um, now curious, curious how you how you look at the way he looked at the impact of anthropology um, on the public space. Yeah, that's um, that's a good question. And I think I think it speaks more widely to like all of us um trying to make sense of like why are we even doing this you know like what is yeah. it? like I think yeah. that's, that's like okay so why and and 
and following like David, it's like, what is the point if we can't have fun, right? So like first, like this sense of like, oh, we need to like re-understand what uh, um, like, you know, human possibilities in like this very uh, playful um, sense, but like that playfulness, it's only the top layer of this sense of like transformation and revolutionary transformation, right? Mm -hmm. Like it, it is supporting that and it's supporting that firm belief that, you know, change is possible. And it didn't come, I think, from, from you know, like an inner conviction that he just had. It came from his years and years of learning and collaborating and contributing and, and understanding processes and proposing changes with other people. And I think that was like his, his like strength was that he could see all these things coming together. Like um, they, he didn't see them as, you know, we, we have people... Uh, in, in something called anthropology, asking these questions, and then there is the rest of the people that need to be impacted by that. It's, no, it's all of us. You know, we are all asking the same questions. We are all redefining what it means to be human. And very often, we have so much more to learn uh, from people that we usually just dismiss. So, like, I, I don't even think the word the word impact really uh, captures uh, this approach in which we, mm. we seriously these efforts for for the otherwise for alternatives for for a, a more pluriversal. Um, and po politically freer um, world. And like, I just think that that courage to take that seriously and like not uh, reify what exists as the only possibility for humanity, it, it was like a, a compass mm. uh, in yeah. that sense that, 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 you know, guided his, his thoughts and his interventions, um, his efforts as a person more than as an academic more widely. Yeah, and maybe it, it connects a bit to the humility part that Amina was talking about earlier. Because I remember I I read something that that he he said at some point. I think it was in an article. I'm I'm really terribly paraphrasing. I think, but what he was saying is that hey, when I when I it was in relation to his work with with anarchist movements, and he said when I am there in the room, I'm not the expert that is going to tell them how the world how their world should be structured. That is not how I see myself. I'm not uh, what I, I am there to listen, and I'm there on the same level with them, asking questions and engaging. And but but this act of of listening, it's actually has quite quite a profound then effect, because you are, yeah, you you position yourself within the group from a different perspective, and therefore the effect that you have is is other. So that that really inspired me when I started doing applied anthropology, um, because I I realized that I I, I migrated so. I was so constrained with within within the boundaries of my own what I was taught. Yeah, you have to be you have to be the one that holds the knowledge. You have to be the one giving giving advice to a group to a company, um, and and I thought, hey, no, maybe I should not be the one giving advice. Maybe I should be the one listening and asking questions and and sitting in spaces of uh, creation with them. And and you know, so yeah. I hear you, Gabriela. What 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 is going through your head, Amina, hearing these uh, stories from Gabriela? I agree with Gabriela and with you so much. I think I'm also thinking that you know the figure of the quote unquote public anthropologist, the way it comes to exist for David, or or the way it continues to exist for David, is that a lot of people don't know he's an anthropologist. They read him for the content for. Mm his ability to analyze and to connect. And I think it's it's that notion of not imposing uh, this title that you've gained within a discipline to introduce your ideas and to 
really allowing yourself to float. And uh, I think it really goes back to, I think he was really able to set himself free from, um, from cages that limit him. So I think it's really about, as you said, bringing the possibility closer to people without necessarily bringing it with a tough or complicated uh, or complex language. Um, after after his passing, I started trying to watch some of the videos on on YouTube, and I realized that you know he's given talks at Google, uh, he's given talks at uh, for for other famous um, media companies, and I think it was interesting to see how language changes based on your audience. His tremendous flexibility in tuning his tongue to whoever is speaking uh, to him or with him. Um, and I think that's still much needed in the world. Not, not many have been able to, to occupy space with, with that. Uh, definitely goes back to humility. I want to move us to another question, and and sorry for my Mandarin maybe posing of this question because I I was thinking how do I write this, but then now I'm thinking to do it differently. Um, I was reading this this article. Um, uh, I'm part of this course called Kinship that talks about how do you make kin from a regenerative perspective, and there are all these beautiful kind of concepts of um, connectivity that that this course kind of asks us, invites us to reflect on. But one of the concepts that 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 they introduced was that when uh, is the connection is is the connection between the process of grieving something and and um, uh, acknowledging um, addition by absence. So what they were saying is like in order to understand what something meant to you, you have to feel the the shape of their loss that it has produced in you. So where where do you feel the gap? Where is the space of absence? Because if you look for the absence, you will find the value or you will find the meaning. And um, and then the process of grieving is a way to search for the emptiness, the absence that will then show you the value. So that's just a great in, uh, a Mandarin bad introduction for my question, which is for you, like, what what is that? What is the shape of, of David's absence um, in your lives? Like, what is that? What do you miss the most about him? Maybe that's a more simple yeah, question that asks the same thing. You know, like, like um, I was just uh, telling you, Karina, before we started mm. recording that I, I feel so much in conversation with David because I'm now writing mm. my dissertation that I started under his uh, support. And now I have to, like... <laughs> continue this conversation with his books and and I see and I see that that's a very real conversation like I do feel uh, that that spirit is it's alive in, in what he wrote um so like I I don't miss that in that sense I think what I miss the most is like conspiring with him you know just like talking about what we could do to create the world the free world we wanted to see um like you know when the revolution comes was like a common trope uh, in our conversations and that's what I miss the most. Like you can't, you can't replace that like that. That just like a spontaneous imagination that maybe never uh, became, you know, like a proper academic book or article, but it was like a sense of, of you know, we, where we are, we, we can do something, we can push, we can, we can 
continue working on this concept, and this is going to somehow help us uh, bring the un- the world we want into being. And I think that that it's um, it's a, it was a loss for me, and it was a loss for the world. I feel like more more widely. Thank you, thank you so much, Gabriela. Um, so I'm just coming from a three days intense workshop called uh, workshopping on epistemic disobedience, and we've been trying to like think with Walter Mignolo, with uh, Dabashi, with uh, Gayatri Spivak, and I think for me, located in the context where I met David, he. He was that figure of epistemic disobedience. Um, and although I've only known him like in person for, for a year, but I remember that our conversations, I think, provided me with a lot of of comfort and affirmation that I was looking for myself um, in terms of um, my theoretical imagination, right? And like the things that I was trying to think about, especially as a as an anthropologist or as an individual coming from the global south trying to occupy a space within a discipline that has a colonial past and how to reconcile with that and how to move forward. Um, And I think with him, uh, I remember our last conversation, uh, he told me, you know, you're you're too much in the clouds, you're flying, but it's good to fly, but you need to you think you need to think about structures that would allow you to fly, but to still land. Um, and I think that was said in the context of, at the end of the day, we we have to exist within institutions that confine us with certain boundaries and, and ways of doing things and ways of writing. Um, there is a particular canon that um, some institutions would like you to reference and would uh, sort of degrade you for not doing that um and i think what i miss or what i grieve is is not um maybe not having read him at the same time as i was engaging with him in person maybe that would have given me another layer of depth in our conversations but i think there's a lot that i cherish in terms of uh having engaged with him at at much more human levels Mm -hmm. other than like intellectual ones um and there's a book that he's given me and i i realized that was the day he was like oh this student might something (laughs) to say of relevance um so i was trying to write a thesis on the translation in morocco and he's like oh you should you should read this book and tell me what it's about um and when COVID hit, we had a Zoom call. And I was like, oh, you know, I really want to give you the book back. Maybe I could drop it by. He's like, oh, no, it's fine. You can keep it. Uh, it it's fine. I think there was so much more to learn um, from him. But I guess being with people who have been groomed with his thinking, like Gabriela, with his other um, PhD students, with uh, people who've read him, like, like you, Corina, I think... There's a lot of inheritance that we've gotten from David that is not necessarily material, but that can transform into something that is material um, by coming together by the power of the collective. Um, And I think that as much as there is grievance, there is also power for searching for the alternative um, that could be powerful. Um, And... 
Yeah, I think a lot of people are are on are on this path of trying to give birth to to that inheritance in other forms. Um, but for me, I really believe that it it potentially should be uh, one that is grounded in sharing and in opening doors because that's what David marked me with. Um, it's it's about opening the door and giving a chair and not not speaking on behalf of the quote unquote mm-hmm. subaltern. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. Thank you, epistemic disobedience. This is so wonderfully put. And and what you talk about, which is the inheritance that like like what he left, you know, to those that that he got came in, came in contact with, then that center of gravity is not necessarily lost, right? It sits. It sits rich in that in that space of potentiality. Um, yeah, and it's very beautifully said. I I I realized that this is the, that epistemic disobedience is what I've been searching for so long before I I found it in his voice and in his books. The invitation to to join him in that space. Um, because I've been told an, an, as as no in my academic education as often as I've been told no in my communist upbringing in Eastern Europe, you know, this kind of denial of a certain way of thinking, denial of a certain way of being that 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 makes you uh, feel less of yourself. Right. And then when somebody like David say, come join me on this path of epistemic disobedience is wonderful. Everybody should do it. <laughs> then you feel kind of less alone. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think because I think there are people who might. I think it's wonderful to write about epistemic disobedience, but it's also great to 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 live it as a praxis and yeah. to about the praxis of it. Um, and then you are given the freedom to label it whatever you want. Yeah. Uh, but at least they give you the the substance and the essence. Um, and I think that's that's definitely powerful and. And inspiring and and worth fighting for, for it not to perish. Yeah, yeah. I have one last question for you, ladies, which is, um, I always thought, you know, if 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 you if if people that are listening to us or are new students into anthropology and they would get to discover David for the first time through his work, what would you recommend them to see or read, or how would you recommend them to discover him for the first time? Another difficult question, I think. I'm sorry. Yeah, but it, I mean, a difficult question is a good question, so it's it's fine. Uh, should make us think hard. Uh, I'm just struggling to to uh, ask you what answer to give. Um, I just I don't know. I love his essays. I think they're so accessible and so fun. And you know, like mm. it's um they're not really academic, but I think they're very enjoyable and they they already touch. They they usually touch like different topics and then you can like dive into them. I'm really like still processing the dawn of everything. Like I I read it a while ago and like I still feel like I need to read it again and and keep processing for like a few years probably. But I think the one the one book I read that really you know it was one of those books that I was reading and every couple of pages I would have to like put it down and like let it sink and like let all all what I was uh, feeling and thinking like developing in me was um, Fragments for an Anarchist Anthropology. Yes, yes, that's my and, favorite one. And I, like, I mean, yeah. it just, yeah, like it really, mm-hmm. it's really powerful. It's really, mm-hmm. it's really, really powerful. And yeah, so like that would be 
probably my my one pick. I love that you say that. That book for me was like the coming of age of a young anthropologist. It's like the journals of the young Werther. You know, like I read that I, I read that and I was like, yes, yes, this is this is this is it. This is the path. I'm out of my liminal space. This is where I want to go as a young anthropologist in the world. It just it's such a beautiful um first text, I think, to discover him him. If, especially if you are entering the space of anthropology, you know, just, just to have that as an invitation when you're studying anthropology or when you are shaping your own ideas of who you want to be as an anthropologist. That's wonderful. Oh, thank you for saying that. That was that was really also mine. Um, what about you, Amina? Uh, I'm yet to reread uh, that book, actually, and, and re-engage with it. I think for me, it's um, the utopia of rules, because I laugh at rules and how stupid they are. And every time I go to a space and I'm told no at a bureaucratic office in Morocco, I just <laughs> laugh and I sit there waiting for my turn. And I remember this essay where David uh, writes about this bureaucratic journey he had to go um, uh, through, where people telling him about the steps didn't understand why they were there and they didn't have any relevance and it was just you know this ritual and this performance and he had to go up and down um i think it was related to his mother's passing and it's just really also humanizing in some sense our experience with the sometimes the brutality of, of bureaucracy sometimes they may be stupid but a lot of a lot of us are sort of oppressed by by these laws, but I think it also provides a possibility to stand against them and say this doesn't lead to anything and to oppose. And I think it's given me more courage to stand against any law that I feel doesn't doesn't make sense and to say, well, perhaps there's an alternative and to actually find government officials or university, you know, registrars who are willing to change the rules for you. Um, so I think that's the book I'd recommend. Now, thank you. Another wonderful one. I, I haven't read it in a long time, so I, I have to reread that too, because also because of my upbringing in Eastern Europe, I think I have such a natural kind of either extreme rebellious to rules or extreme disregard, but, but still they have this extreme hold on me as if they are the truth somehow, which is really not real. So, uh, yeah, unpacking that power uh, and the way he does it in that kind of playful and subversive way, it, it's really a delightful, I think, little book. Ladies, we have come almost at the end. I, I wonder before we close off, I, I just want to say, first of all, thank you for sharing um, the David that you met with me and, and with our listeners. It, it kind of, yeah, it's difficult to hold back my tears. It sounds so corny, but I just... I just found it such a nice, warm space of, of, of connection. So thank you for for creating that space. And um, do you have anything else? Do you feel there's anything left unsaid? Anything else that you say, hey, I want to also put this into the space? Um, thanks to you, Corina. This was very uh, enjoyable. And, and thanks for, for bringing the conversation to like his more uh, human side and what is left unsaid where so many things and that's 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 great you know we still have so much <laughs> we have so many conversations to build and i think that's uh that's the fun part like again like maybe invite to to engage with his work like if, if you want to read an essay or watch a video or i'm sure you're going to find something that's going to be thought-provoking and mm -hmm. yeah i mean it's a it's a great 
person to to meet, even if you can only meet it, meet him now in the in what he left behind in written or or audiovisual form. But yeah, just to reinforce that invitation to conversation. I agree with uh, Gabriela. Thank you so much, Corina. You made this space possible, and I'm really keen on listening to the series. Uh, I love the title "Love Letters to." To David, um, because they're unconventional um, in in the sense that they're humanizing and they're not necessarily complex to hear. Um, mm -hmm. Basically, by virtue of bringing him closer to people who've never met him, neither in writing nor nor in person. Um, but I, I think I think this space has also made me um, want to go back to being closer. I think sometimes the distance. Um, collapses and we need to, mm. to rebuild it and we shouldn't take it for granted I think that's something that I'm taking away from the space thank you so much you're welcome and this is you are the first uh, love letter to David Graver that we are recording and for those of our listeners that have a story to share or a thought to da for David having met him in person or through his books like me just just reach out with we'd love to record more love letters to david and and be able to expose um yeah him in this way and to to more people and his legacy thank you thank you for listening everyone follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speakers work Join us next time for more interesting conversations.